we are um, on a uh, journey right now uh, through uh, the Gospels. Uh, we'll, we started last week, and this week we'll pick up the, some of the birth narrative of Christ, and we'll kind of follow him through his three years of ministry on earth uh, until uh, Palm Sunday, we'll take a look at his final week on earth, and then Easter Sunday, we'll take a look at the resurrection, and then we'll have a couple of weeks of wrap-up after that, but uh, we're just kind of trying to take a look at Christ through a little bit different lens, and set aside some of our uh, preconceptions about who Jesus is, and it, it's, I was explaining last week that, you know, it's the difference between reading uh, history and reading fiction is with history, you, you know how it's going to end, and I, I asked, I don't think Keith is here this morning, but I asked Keith Rumbo one time, you know, do you like to read Civil War history, because we were having a conversation about a, a Civil War general, and he said, I, you know, I used to, but I, I, I can't read it anymore because it always ends the same way. It's so depressing, you know. Sorry, Sherry, it's just a Southern thing, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, it, when you know the ending, it kind of interrupts your ability to wonder about uh, what it was like for the people who didn't know the ending. And so that's kind of the the perspective we want to take for this series. And this morning, I want us to look back at the some little snapshots, really, of the birth narrative of Jesus, mostly from uh, Luke and Matthew, as they come to us through those two authors. Um, and just sort of marvel at the idea that in, in, in the full expanse of creation, in the, in the billions of galaxies that are out there, God came down to this one. He lessened himself and humbled himself and arrived on our little spinning mess of a planet and said, I love you. And so for us to just kind of stop and contemplate the the cosmic insanity of that for a minute. Um, let's take a look. Uh, I'm going to jump back to the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke and go there first. And this is where Mary uh, comes to realize uh, her place in redemptive history. And I want you to I want you to imagine that you're this 15 year old girl. And this angel appears to you and says this to you. Um, just think of it that way for just a second, and let's see what that does. Uh, Luke chapter 1, I'll begin in verse 26 and read through verse 34. Then I'll say a couple of things, and I'll conclude with uh, verse 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favor, favored one. The Lord is with you. <laughs> but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. 
And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? So, what's going through Mary's mind at this point? She's freaking out. And she probably realizes, I mean, whatever your first kind of reactive response would be to that news, uh, where do most of us go with news? When there's a few questions, our minds go to, I don't know, maybe the worst case scenario, right? We sort of, we start thinking of, what will my Aunt Sarah say? You know, she's so judgmental, whatever. Um, you, can, you can almost see this girl going, this is not okay. <laughs> Wait a minute. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to catch a lot of grief for this. This isn't the way it's supposed to work. Um, are you sure? What's really going on? And so... The angel replies to her question and and gives her some logistics, right? Which I, if you read that response, I didn't feel like I had space for it really. But um, if you read that response, it's it doesn't seem particularly helpful. Like the angel kind of goes, "Well, this is how it's going to happen," not so much the why. And Mary's kind of left going, "Oh." great, that's bizarre. But her response, her response puts her in a very unique position in history. So after the angel has explained what's going to happen, this verse 38 says, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So, Philip Yancey in the the book, we're kind of following the structure for this series, makes a great point. That right here in verse 38, Mary becomes the very first person to accept Jesus on his own terms. Not in terms that are that which is convenient to her, but to unequivocally accept Jesus on his own terms. Okay. All right. Um, This is going to be really uncomfortable in every possible sense of the word, but okay, I'm your servant. You dictate, you know, what, how this is going to play out and I'll, I'll accept. And so we have this window into the coming of Christ that 
you know, in the midst of these words to Mary, the, the weight of what's happening is revealed, that he will be great, that he will be the son of the Most High, that he will sit on the throne of David. Everyone in Israel at this time was longing for the day that the Roman authority would be purged from Palestine and they would have self-government and self-reign and independence. And I don't know that they would have thought of it in terms of freedom like we do, but that's what they wanted. And there were many in Jesus' day who, who fought violently to overthrow Rome or Roman occupation. That was a, a very common practice. And uh, so Mary hears these words and gets some idea of the weight of what's happening. Um, then we're going to jump over to the Gospel of Matthew real quick in chapter 1 and read verses 18 and 19. Um, this is uh, talking mostly about uh, Joseph and, and his being made aware of this situation. So, Matthew 1, 18 and 19. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Um, and if you know the story, uh, an angel then appears to Joseph and says, no, no, it's not what you think. Um, I, I want you to stay with her, and we're going to get through this together. Um, and Joseph, once the angel appears to him, uh, acquiesces and, and changes his plan and does not divorce Mary. But what, what do we see here? That the birth of Christ has come in a very unfavorable context, unfavorable to Mary, unfavorable to Joseph, unfavorable to Jesus. Um, You know, they were going to raise him in a very small town uh, where everyone knew everyone. And I don't know if you've ever lived in a small town. I, I have not, but my mother, her family is from a small town, and let me assure you, everyone knows everyone. And they know everyone's business, and they know everyone's past mistakes, and they know everyone's indiscretions, and they, they know it all, right? There aren't many secrets in a small town. And God is going to come in that he chooses this sort of illegitimate place in the world to bring his presence to bear on humanity. Uh, An automatic rejection by most of society. He he puts himself in that position. Okay, let's continue. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 34 through 35. We come upon, uh, this is the crazy guy. And he sits outside the temple in Jerusalem. Everybody knows him. And he says weird things all the time. And if you were a frequent visitor of the temple, 
you would do the same thing you and I do when we pull up to the street corner closest to our home that always has the guy with the cardboard sign. You just go right by, right? You've seen him there all the time, and you're kind of immune to it, right? And so Simeon would have been that guy, just kind of hairy and old and weird, and he would say weird things. And Mary comes walking up uh, with her baby, with her son, her firstborn son, and Simeon kind of captures the moment fairly well, actually. Uh, It says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Um, Let me read those words without the parenthetical thought as Simeon sort of interrupts his thought and turns to Mary. Um, Let me just read it without that parenthesis for a second. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Um, Aren't you supposed to say, oh, he's beautiful. I love his eyes. Oh, he has your nose. Isn't that what you're supposed to say? And Simeon drops this bizarre, weird bomb on Mary as she's carrying Jesus into the temple. Like, what? Um, what? Thanks. A lot. A sword will pierce my own heart also. Yeah, great news. Um, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit in a little while, but the, the intentionality of God and the way he comes into the world, he knows, he knows there's this battle between good and evil, and he is injecting himself right into the front lines. And he knows that it's going to be ugly. And he uses his prophet Simeon to, to announce that to Mary. Um, and she already knows this is something different, right? Um, let's jump back to the Gospel of Matthew real quick. And we're going to um, contrast a couple of kings. Um, Gabriel has already told Mary that her son will be will sit on the throne of David, and now we have uh, sort of a, uh, a joke of a monarch who is occupying that throne in a minor political sense. He's a subject of the Roman occupation, but he's the Jewish leader, so to speak, politically. And his name is Herod, and Herod uh, hears about the coming of Christ through three guys from Persia who show up on the doorstep of Herod's temple and say, hey, we heard the Messiah was born, the king of the Jews. Can you tell us where we might find him? And Herod's like, oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Calls some of his people over like, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? They say, well, Bethlehem. He says, check Bethlehem. 
And then the wise men leave and don't tell Herod they found him, and he freaks out, and you'll, you'll, we'll get there. So then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So we can presume the wise men were a little late to the game, a couple, you know, years maybe, a year and a half, something like that. And uh, they basically kind of blow the whistle. They let the cat out of the bag that this Messiah has been born. Uh, You know, some people who are critics of Christianity often uh, object to the idea that this Herod would would order the killing of babies. Uh, There's you know, he killed so many of his own relatives in his quest to retain his power. It's, it's really not difficult to believe. And the week or so before he died, he knew he was dying. Um, he ordered like 70 or 80 elders of the Jewish people arrested and held in prison. And his instructions were, on the day I die, kill them all. Because I want there to be mourning in the streets when I die because he knew there would be quite a celebration actually and uh, so he wanted to make sure that and so he died and thankfully uh, none of his soldiers carried out the orders because it was just it was it, he was insane he was crazy and so this little snapshot is not at all inconsistent with the crazy guy trying to protect his power and and be able to pass it on to the, to the people he wanted to pass it on to. Um, but let's just pause for a second. And if you or I were coming up with a plan for the best way to enter planet Earth and change the world, would you have come up with any of this? I don't think I would. You know, boom, hey, people straighten up. Ship up or ship out, right? Let's get this thing straight. Uh, we got, you know, you want to, I want this, this, and this. You line up over here. Uh, you people over there. Let's go, right? You want to, what's that? You want to go Craig? You, I'd go Craig Russell on them, right? Some of you know Craig. Um, and Jesus, by God's order, comes almost in the opposite, almost in the completely opposite way. You know, the only real exception is the presence of angels uh, at his birth. The, the shepherds that were there, those would have been, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of an occupation. We don't really, uh, when I was a kid, you know, you, you always kind of thought, I, the last thing I want to do is garbage man. But we don't, we don't, we're not, that's not politically correct to talk about garbage men that way. They're sanitation uh, engineers now. And, uh, but... You know, who, what, who, th- these are like homeless guys. It would be like having six homeless guys at your, in your delivery room. You know, it was crazy. Uh, shepherds were not very well respected or well received in their society. They were the garbage men. What does this tell us? What do these snapshots tell us about our God, about our Christ? What do we learn here? 
uh, first, we learn that Jesus is approachable. This is perhaps um, the most poignant truth of these birth narratives, that instead of coming in with power, which he will, he will uh, re-enter this planet uh, in power on a white horse with a two-edged sword, uh, and there will be a reckoning, right? He will. But when he wants to change everything, he comes in um, and displays humility instead of power. He shows that he's not afraid of humble circumstances or anything else for that matter. Our almighty creator came to earth as an embryo. There is nothing more fragile, nothing more uh, precious, nothing more um, uncertain than a one-celled human being. And God started there. The God who created it all started there. And when he was born, the king of all kings is laying in a feed trough with, sorry, but there's like donkey slobber, right? This is a nasty place. Um, I'll, I'll just try, I don't know if this is really worth it or not, but here we go. Um, it, Jesus was probably born in a one-room house, and the way people lived in the first century was, you know, they had a dirt floor, and if they had any animals, they were fortunate, and they would bring their animals in at night to keep them from being stolen or eaten or, you know, something else, uh, lost, etc. And the beds were all about mm, three or four feet off the floor, and they would have gone kind of all the way around the room, and that gives you room to have other things downstairs, right? There's room on the floor during the day to and clean and do whatever else you need to do. Um, and so the whole, the whole narrative that we've made up, that he went to a hotel, uh, that, you know, that Joseph went to a hotel and there was no room at the end, there pro- Bethlehem was you know, maybe one to 200 people at this time in history. There was no hotel in Bethlehem. Um, the, word, the word in Greek just means sleeping quarters. There was no room in the sleeping. So that what it means is that all the beds were taken, Right? They, she couldn't lay Jesus down because they, maybe they got there late. I don't know. Um, but here this little girl gives birth, and the only place to put the baby is in the feed trough. And they wrap him in whatever they can find because these are not people with means. And every impression that the narrative gives us is that of poverty, just dirt and poverty, and you know, we send out the Christmas cards, and there's this lovely glow coming from the manger, um, and, and really, it was it was probably nastier than you or I could tolerate. It, it was it was this was rank poverty uh, at its most extreme, and so um, that's where he begins. And the great I am is born in total obscurity. Um, you know, the fact that shepherds were called to witness this arrival of God on earth is astonishing 
Uh, I mean, these are the lowest of the low in society. Uh, maybe criminals would be lower, but we'll get there. He'll get there later. Um, God is humble. This is what he was intentionally seeking to establish that we might know that our God is approachable. Think about the idea that most of us develop about God or most cultures develop about God that we must revere, that we must respect, that we must uh, keep him satisfied or else, right? That's sort of the native religious instinct and God says no Um, I mean I am all those things but I'm also humble and approachable Um, he proves to us through the way he came that he values being relatable instead of being fear driven Um, again most religions when left up to us will get into the fear dynamic. You had better honor God. You had better behave yourself or else, or bad things will happen, right? And God says, um, I have a different message I want to bring down to earth. And I, I, can't, I can't help but put this in contrast. You know, these, these terrorists that break into the newspaper offices in Paris, France, and shoot what was it, 12 people dead, something like that, nine, some just whatever, right, um, 12. And what they're screaming while they do this is Allah is great, right? And they say vocally at the end, um, we have avenged the prophet's honor or something like that. We've avenged Allah's honor, Um And that expression betrays something in the heart of those people. That whatever you want to call their faith, it's fear-driven. It's driven by fear, by this idea that God must be revered at all costs. And and then, of course, they have a God that, that, that is apparently so weak that he needs their bullets to uh, defend him, to, to, to uphold him. And our God says, no, your cry, your cry is not uh, God is great, which he is. Your cry is Emmanuel. God is with us. Um, the total shift in how we see God, how we relate to God, how we connect to God is apparent in the birth of Christ. God is relatable because he comes to be with us, not to stand over us. And because our Messiah is born to a poor single mom. You know, I wonder, and this is just a thought, right? But I wonder, you know, Mary and Joseph were betrothed and, and she's very pregnant, which I like that term. Um, and, and he says, honey, I, I've got to go to Bethlehem. I'll be back in about a week. And she's thinking, okay, I could stay here and have my baby in Nazareth and then listen to my Aunt Sue and everything she's going to say or whatever, right? 
Or maybe she turns to him and says, can I please go with you? Can, I pl- can you just get me out of here? Um, I don't want to face this. It's, it's been terrible already. Can we just go? Can you take me with you? And he's like, sure, come on. All right. And so off they go. And Jesus, growing up in that town with all the whispers and all the pointing, and yeah, that's him. That's the one. And he guarantees that he will grow up in this context where he will come to know shame, scorn, and rejection. Because life is not going to be easy for the kid who came in the wrong way in the small town. All of these factors point to a God who is approachable and humble and relatable because he understands what it means to be human in the truest sense of the word. And while our God is approachable, he is also courageous, unafraid to take on these aspects of our humanity to face the rejection and the shame. Um, He is a risk taker. He chooses this risk over his own personal safety or protection. Um, You know, when my kids were born, there's this like, my kids used to call me overprotective. That was like with a capital O. It was like my name. Like, hey, overprotective, lighten up, right? And, you know, my kids are born, and I'm thinking, how do I protect them? How do I prevent bad things from happening? We've all, you've all probably been there, right? Um, and God says, no, I'm not going to do that for my kid. Um, he's going he's gonna to take the worst of what there is out there, Um God takes, chooses to take a risk over preserving his own personal safety or that of his son. His son, as Simeon points out, is born into a context of danger and opposition. God knows there's a battle between good and evil, and he knows he's pulling it all together right there. And he's not afraid. And so... You know, um, I want to just talk for a moment about the tears that bookend the life of Christ. There's, you know, I mean, undoubtedly the childbirth and then the infanticide that follows. Um, Herod's little killing of, you know, two-year-old boys um, probably only involved a handful of, of families, but oh my word, Uh, what a horrid moment. And there's an Old Testament prophecy about the wailing and the weeping in Ramah because of what would happen when the Messiah came. And there's, so there's this outpouring of tears at his birth. And Simeon says, and and his, his death will bring the same to you. A sword will pierce your own heart, Mary. This is going to, end painfully for you 
Um, but hold out. There's hope. God's going somewhere with all of this. And Jesus is willing to take that risk because he chooses love over violence. Um, in one of the greatest ironies of history, the, the one who will, who will end the violence against our souls um, willingly suffers the violence of the Roman Empire uh, and just lays down his life. He doesn't fight back. Um, in fact, he tells Peter to put away his sword. And so this Savior chooses love he visits our planet to show us a new way. That there is a way to find peace in our souls, peace with God and peace with one another through what Christ has done for us on the cross. He shows us a new way and he dies to bring life. And if you think about the unlikeliness of this whole equation, He's born into perhaps the most obscure and tumultuous corner of the Roman Empire. The, arguably the greatest political military entity the world has ever known. Um, and he's born in obscurity, in poverty, with no wealth or access to power or any of the things that we would associate with greatness. And his little band of peasant fishermen followers outlasts the Roman Empire by, well, we'll come up on a couple of millennia here in a few, couple more hundred years. Um, but how unlikely, how amazing this courageous God who shows no fear of evil, of opposition, of, of risk, um, he, he does it all out of love. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for your word, and we marvel at the way you work your plan. You operate in a sphere that is so foreign to us as you risk and love and persevere even through death to bring us life. May we live in the light of your love in each and every day that we have on this earth. And may we look forward to living in the light of your love for all eternity forward. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.